This is High Stakes from Gerard Phillips, Kate, and Hancock. This is The Art of Change on High Stakes. I'm David Schifrin. For more on The Art of Change, a digital publication focused on the fundamental human dynamic in healthcare, head over to aoc.gerardinc.com. That's aoc.jarrardinc.com. There you can check out all of our articles, our previous volumes, and you can also subscribe for updates. So this conversation is part of Volume 5, which is about listening and storytelling. Dr. Michael Fratkin is a physician who specializes in palliative care. About five years ago, frustrated and burned out, he decided to make his own change. He left his position, ran a crowdfunding campaign, and started Resolution Care Network, a palliative care organization that focuses on in-home and rural care. Their motto is bringing capable and compassionate care to everyone, everywhere, in the face of serious illness. Dr. Fratkin's work puts him in a position where listening and inviting patients to tell their stories is foundational to delivering the best possible care to incredibly vulnerable patients. In this conversation, we talk about what he's learned through that experience, how he applies it as a clinician and as a business leader, and how lessons from listening at the bedside apply all the way up to a health system CEO. Many thanks to Dr. Fratkin for his time and his insight. Please be sure to check out his work and the Resolution Care team at resolutioncare.com. This is great, Michael. Thank you. So as we were talking about before, you know, the the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you uh, kind of two two parts. One, you're a clinician. So you're very focused on the evidence and and the data and the medicine of of delivering great clinical care. And you're also working in this field where you're working with people at the most sensitive times in their life and you're helping them make decisions and their loved ones and you're helping them to navigate this thing that we as a society don't like to talk about. And so we don't talk about. And so um, I wanted to hear your perspective on what it means as a clinician or just as a human at the bedside, listening to someone as they're working through what it means to be coming to the end of their life and how you, how you listen and, and how you hear their stories and kind of set, use that as the stage to, to set the stage as we jump into this deeper conversation. The first thing that I do is I let these folks know that we don't take care of any patients. We only take care of people. And I let them know that we take care of them with a, an extraordinary team of other people. Um, the only difference that separates those people over there with their trouble and difficulties and medical lists of problems and us is that they're in a moment in their life where they really have a need to receive assistance and help. So you've made that clear to these people that you're working with and that you're caring for. And then what does it look like to, to sit with them and to hear their wishes and hear them, I would assume process out loud, a lot of uh, pretty intense stuff. Well, well, we'll back up a little bit to where we just left off. Yeah. The way that I think about this is that we're listening from a point of view. Like typically in the clinical encounter, the physician, the nurse, the social worker, the administrator, they listen to everything coming their way from 
their role, their identity, their expertise, their cred credential, their license. They listen from there and then have a world of boxes to check and an agenda to complete from that point of view. Now we get there. Our nurses are real nurses. Our social workers are real social workers. I'm a real doctor. We get there. But we get there through listening from the humanity that connects me to that other person. The first thing I want to ask a person after I introduce myself is, who are you? I've got reams of medical records and tons of data all at my disposal. And I generally have reviewed that in some detail before I walk into the room. I know who they are as a patient, more or less. I know what they're facing from their medical circumstances. But I could spend six weeks with 10 feet of medical records and not have a clue who they actually are as a person, how they see the world, how they understand their circumstances, what it means to them. Any story needs to understand who the characters are right from the get-go. So that's the, I love that framing. So if we're talking about the, the book, it's that first page or first sentence that gives the reader an immediate sense of who they're dealing with. There's it's a the whole, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, that's where we start. Who are you? In truth, actually, and probably pretty atypically, um, I very purposefully and intentionally offer fragments of the character of me. Like I realize I walk into this person's life, I need to draw a sketch of who I am. You know, and so I share elements. They say, I've got a daughter, I've got a daughter. They say, I came from New York, I came from New York. So what happens when, if you don't do that? Um, you know, talk, talk about the, the absence of that and I mean, if, if that opens you up to having these conversations and understanding, delivering incredible care and what is, you know, the antithesis of that. There's no engagement. We're, we're a healthcare intervention focused on the personhood of an individual that has many medical problems. We know a lot about medicine, but without the engagement, without their willingness to trust, then they won't ever really reveal the stuff that we need to guide them. They won't reveal what's most important to them. They won't trust us because they would see us just as a part of the same old, same old that they've been alienated and separated from um, through, you know, out all their best efforts to engage healthcare. Most of our folks too, David, are, safety net folks. These are folks that mm -hmm. are young and poor and super duper sick with an enormous burden of social determinants of health. They have every reason to not trust themselves, let alone trust the world around them and authorities that come forward, even with their best interests in mind. And we don't know that until we explore it, 
and they won't share it unless we invite it. Can you give an example of uh, an instance, whether it was with your team or a patient or, or whatever, where, um, where you yourself kind of missed the mark on, on the conversation and where it ended up? Oh, I was just about to tell you all the, you know, a couple of good examples of where I didn't. <laughs> Great. Let's go. Let's go there. No, 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 no. Let's, let's actually look for um, a place, you know, sometimes by the time my initial encounter occurs, uh, others will have gathered a ton of information and our interprofessional team has met and they will have uh, created a sort of a sense of this person in my mind and sometimes that gets in the way of exploring and discovering things that uh, were not gathered by other members of the team i mean my job as the physician is to bring the gravitas of my role in to uniquely extract actionable understanding of this person uh, so sometimes i absorb a story from others and my job will be to lay all of the reactions and impressions that my team has gathered in their initial encounters with this person to walk into the room as if i actually don't know this person and all of the ways that she um, structures her approach to difficulties and challenges in front of her and to be entirely fresh and open. But the challenge is ensuring I'm really receptive to whatever comes my way and that I really don't know, no matter what I've heard, what what their story is. Yeah, because again, as, as you were saying, you, you've, you've reviewed their, their, um, their case, you've seen the notes, you know, you've looked at their labs, so you have a huge amount of data and you're making scientific decisions, medical decisions based on that and, and kind of building a picture of this person, but those don't tell the whole, whole story and they are important. So that talk about that some more that um, I'll call it attention. I don't know if that's the word that you would use, but that tension between having the, the data and, and then having to back off of that in a way uh, to be able to hear them as a person. Yeah, this is, this is the, probably the greatest dilemma of the um, uh, kind of status quo healthcare structures as we focus so much on what we know and we know a lot. Um, the trick is to shift your focus away from what you know and continuously ask yourself the question, what don't I know? What doesn't add up here? Looking at what's in front of you and the data that accumulates around a medical problem gives a false sense of understanding the breadth and depth of what this person needs. And it's really in that depth that their behavior emerges. We, we like to think in our very rational left brain Western model of analyzing problems that the answer is in the rational integration of huge uh, and sometimes conflicting data sets. But that's not the way 
decisions are made by people. They're sometimes influenced by logical, rational assessment and analysis. Some people are more that way and some people are less, but the actual choice making comes from within us and beneath the surface of all that. Since I know that's true, that gives me a advantage because I'm, I'm looking for what are the underlying reasons why a person is finding their way to this challenge, you know, finding their way to solutions for the challenge that's in front of them. Mm -hmm. So let's go with that some more too, uh, because there are, there are different personalities. There are different learning styles and thinking styles. And you've got the person who is, you know, they, they want to see a few bullet points and a couple of, uh, plots of data, and then they're going to make a decision. And then you've got the person who is very much the qualitative story driven, um, you know, whatever. And then, and then you've got the person who kind of, yeah, the, the person who's got the, the mix of those, they need some data. They want to hear the reason why something's being considered and, and then, you know, give me five minutes, we're going to make a call and we're going to run with it. So how do you, how do you adjust and how do you think about, you know, all those different people and all those different contexts? Whether you work from the purely logical analytical left brain perspective or uh, to push that metaphor the other direction, the very intuitive, very feely kind of right brain. What unifies all of those people and their humanity is storytelling, is how do they see who they are in the arc of their life. Every life can be seen in a really practical way as a story that had a beginning, it has a middle, and at least in our focus has a kind of end as a, at least a hint about what's going on for them. Um, so it's, it's, it's how do they see themselves? What character have they created for themselves? What beliefs have they gathered together? What are the themes? What's the moral? What are the things that matter the most to them? What would it look like if they completed their life feeling complete? These are all the elements of a story. And that is deep inside the human experience. Whether you think you're working it this way or think you're working it that way. It's so interesting when I think about how um, <clears throat> we have the impression that we're so logical, many of us. We're so analytical. We really are balancing. But I've been reading Hahnemann and Tversky. Um, and I know a lot about what we think we know and how we think we make decisions. And I don't think it's quite the way our conscious, this little tip of the iceberg of our cognitive and behavioral repertoire. And I have a lot of affection for scientific inquiry, right? A lot of appreciation and respect for it. And it tells me a lot about actionable understanding of specific disease states, but it tells me very little about actionable information about well-being. We're mm. only beginning to even point our scientific inquiry at happiness and well-being. And it's because it lives in the realm of story and myth and 
you know, Joseph Campbell comes to mind when I talk about this is what we think and do in terms of our rational, reductive, analytic approach to problems like medical crises doesn't even come close to illuminating actionable material from the story that a person is telling about their experience. Many, many times I've got tons of patients who don't get the evidence-based best treatment even though it's offered to them because there's a story in a way. There's some way of thinking about what's happening to them that's in the way of accepting it. And one of the things that I can do is reframe the story in a way that allows them to step forward towards things that I think are evidence-based likely to bring them benefit. So a couple of kind of the direction I want to take this is I want to talk about how you apply all of this in your work operating resolution care um, as an organization. So shifting away from the, the, you know, what you've learned from the, the clinical and the personal interactions into how you run your business, your business. And then the, the last thing, um, take it up another level and, and, you know, to our audience who has a mix of people, but a lot of people who, who are running hospitals, uh, departments, health systems, in many cases, like what, what, you know, how do you apply everything that we've just talked about kind of at that level when it comes to interacting with the, the community and also the staff? So talk about the way you employ both storytelling and listening as you keep resolution care running. Yeah, no, I, I mean, if this wasn't valuable, I promise you, I wouldn't have gotten this far in the sort of life cycle of success Resolution Care Network is, because I don't know a damn thing about running a business or an organization. (laughs) Nobody ever trained me that. I've realized how many people have studied and learned a skill set and a set of approaches that I know nothing about. Um, I kind of joke that I'm a, uh, I am play a CEO on TV. Although over the course of five years, I am kind of working on that little part of my story, which is the, you know, I'm an imposter, right? It's cute, but it's actually, I'm learning how to lead. And story is everything. I mean, I was a burned out palliative care doctor in an under-resourced environment that got fed up and had enough crazy in me or enough coffee in me to think that I could step out of the box and build something new. And I did that with a crowdfunding campaign and uh, a donated office space and one person that I could afford to pay. But then I had to gather people around me to take that kind of risk. And I didn't gather, you know, 20 something year old, uh, Silicon Valley, startup obsessed, entrepreneurially (laughs) trained MBAs. I was working with social workers who were burned out and nurses who were burned out and uh, community health workers and had to draw them together. And I drew them together with the simple idea that I started this conversation with is that the story I'm telling is that those people over there who are moaning and fussing and writhing and suffering and oozing and messy 
and full of chaos in their lives are no different, no more important than them. My nurses and social workers and chaplains and community health workers and care coordinators and operational partners and leaders in the organization. And that absolutely is the rudder in the water pointing us forward. It's simple, but we've had to live up to that. And there've been times where people have brought that, you know, it doesn't seem like we're as important as they are anymore because of the, the this change in the way we're doing things or um, our anxieties about operational performance and financial performance and all that. Um, so we've had to, you know, continue to kind of keep on track. But that simple element of story, that's been transformative and entirely leads to everybody working together. And in fact, it's pretty common that the people that work at Resolution Care feel ruined from any other site in healthcare, at least the ones that have stayed. Some have come and gone because the, you know, the risk profile and the risk environment for healthcare workers is, is on the, the high end of that spectrum. Um, but the ones that have stayed, that, that's why they've stayed. They get it, that we honor them and respect them and are interested in their well-being and their development as much as we are in the healing, well-being, and improved quality of life of the people under our care. Um, but it's a, it's a bunch of very strong-willed, strong-thinking individuals that care so deeply about this work. And they are unified around a simple set of ideas. Okay. Well, let's take it up to that, uh, uh, kind of the health system level. And, and anybody listening is going to be able to extract a lot of very practical things from what you've said. Um, but very explicitly talk about how your work at the bedside and as a leader mm -hmm. that we just talked about for somebody who is sitting in an office, uh, as a CEO or COO running a, uh, you know, a 30 hospital health system or a three hospital health system, whatever, with 12,000, 15,000, 30,000 employees that they're responsible for. How do you do all this? What are the lessons that you've learned that they can apply? Coffee matters. Excellent. Always start there. Always start with coffee. Um, as a CEO, I am fully involved, at least at the current stage of our illness, I'm fully involved with taking care of people uh, under our care every day. You know, so that anchors me. As we grow, I won't be able to do that. Um, but my attention transitionally will go towards the mentorship of the people in the organization. The work that I do at the bedside has got to be 97% authentic and real. It cannot be ice cream socials, barbecues, patting people on the back, giving them, you know, employee of the month cards. It can't be any of that stuff, but it could be all those things. But the leader of the organization has to show up. The leader of the organization doesn't have to take care of all of the details of operational decision-making, but the leader of the organization has got to be an appropriate projection 
for all of those members, 12,000 of them, 12 of them. You've got to be authentic, honest, and yourself as a human being if you wish to encourage that to develop into your culture. And that I have learned at the bedside by falling on my face over and over again, trying to be a great doctor, trying to be a clever therapeutic counselor, trying to be all spiritual, trying to be something other than what I actually am. When I come in and I am a great Michael, straight up, they allow me to make mistakes. They forgive me. They trust me. And when they ask me for my advice, they tend to take it. And are I, they all, yeah, go ahead. Are they, are they also more likely, it's a very leading question here, but are they also more likely to tell you the unvarnished truth, tell you their story when you're, when they know that you're being authentic and when they trust you, do you, do you get more feedback? I guess I get lots more feedback. That's part of what I was saying is, is okay. kind of hard. Right. And as we scale, I'll have to continuously learn new skills and new ways of populating a different scaled uh, ecosystem, but it will always be about showing up. It'll always be about being present. It'll always be about being tuned in to the problems we're trying to solve, like really tuned in as a listener. Um, and you know, there's tons of leaders that have tons of experience and tons of skills that I don't have, but I'll never, I don't have to be them. I just have to be me. And I need to like gather around a lot of super talented people with all the skills I don't have and try to refine my role towards the things I really am great at. Fantastic. Dr. Michael Fratkin, always a pleasure. Thanks for your insight. This oh, is awesome. my pleasure too, David. I'm um, really pleased that uh, uh, storytelling and uh, the technology of listening is uh, an important message that, that y'all are advancing. So thanks so much for the opportunity. 